The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Staying in the Clear When Managing Psoriasis, Utilizing Biologics to Improve Cutaneous Outcomes in Difficult-to-Treat Areas, Prevent Psoriatic Disease Progression, and Safeguard Quality of Life. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash DJC 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, everyone. Well, thank you for joining us today. Um, we have a very exciting evening planned for you. It is my pleasure to introduce uh, my co-presenter, Dr. Tina Butani, who is Associate Professor of Dermatology in the Department of Dermatology at UCSF. And, uh, and my name is April Armstrong. I'm Professor in Chief of Dermatology at UCLA. And today we're going to talk about staying in the clear when managing psoriasis specifically on utilizing biologics to improve outcomes in your difficult-to-treat patients with difficult-to-treat areas, as well as how to prevent psoriatic disease progression and safeguard quality of life. And so today we're going to talk about assessing psoriasis disease severity and determining if a patient is a candidate for systemic therapy. And also we're going to talk about some of the pathophysiology and progression of psoriatic disease going from psoriasis to developing comorbidities such as psoriatic arthritis. And also, I think we're also going to talk about how to prepare our patients for personalized management and how to communicate that with them. And then also share some strategies about coordinated care for multidisciplinary care. All right. So I'm going to first talk about some of the burden and pathophysiology of psoriasis, and, and I'll get Tina's thoughts on some of these topics. So as you probably are aware, psoriasis is one of the most common immune-mediated conditions. Over 3% of the U U.S. population have psoriasis. And very importantly is that while we know that it uh, occurs at higher prevalence uh, in patients uh, of Caucasian background, but we also know in patients with skin of color, oftentimes it can be misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed. And when we think about psoriasis, there are a number of different comorbidities that we talk about. Uh, most com commonly, psoriatic arthritis, uh, affecting about 30% of the patients, so about one out of three patients with psoriasis. And it's also important to know that there are a number of other comorbidities, such as metabolic disease syndrome, diabetes being a part of it, and psoriatic arthritis. I want to also mention sleep. So there's new data in sleep, and I know Tina has been really the leader in terms of looking at that particular comorbidity. Do you want to say a few words about that, Tina? So we, we're learning that sleep disturbance is actually more prevalent in psoriasis patients than we might think. And even in psoriasis patients that are well-controlled, actually, we see that their sleep is actually more fragmented. They're getting up more times in the middle of the night. They're having trouble falling back asleep. And that's all actually leading to more and more inflammation in their body. And so I think it's going to be really interesting moving forward, the research that's, that's coming, out of, coming out of our center and other centers around the world. Absolutely. Okay, so I think as clinicians, we know that psoriasis patients have a high disease burden. They oftentimes avoid certain hobbies and also may have poor self-image. If they have supportive families, that's great. But, you know, if they don't have that social support or network support, you, they might want to consider contacting the National Psoriasis Foundation, which is a patient advocacy nonprofit organization where they have a groups, a network that can help support that. 
And triggers and modifiers of psoriasis symptoms is actually one of my kind of favorite topics, right? So we think about things such as infection. We typically think about strep infection as something that may trigger, for example, gut psoriasis. And just a clinical question, Dr. Butani, do you tend to treat patients like with a uh, who present with a gut psoriasis with an antibiotic as well, or not usually, unless they have an active strep infection. Still, then then I might do it, but usually by the time I see them, their strep infection is actually resolved, and so now it's the psoriasis that's left behind. So I'm not usually treating with an antibiotic. Do you? So I actually do. Yeah, um, it's great. That's what happens when you yeah. get two speakers. Yes, exactly. And we did not talk about this ahead of time, right? <laughs> so um, I do for a few weeks with erythromycin okay. and oral erythromycin. There's some evidence, weak evidence showing that it may be helpful. Perhaps that's probably a little bit maybe anti-inflammatory as sure. well. Yeah. Um, yeah. So <laughs> great. So and then uh, certain medications, right? So we think about beta blockers, for example, as one of the common medications that can actually exacerbate psoriasis or even trigger psoriasis. Think about lithium, common culprit in those situations. And, and there are certain modifiers, avoidance of the triggers, getting enough sleep, potentially relaxation techniques. Okay, so now we're going to meet a patient. So we're going to go ahead and play the video. So you'll see there's some video stories intercalated in our presentation today. Hi, my name is Paul Sandler. I'm 31 years old and I've been living with mild to moderate psoriasis for about seven to eight years now. I'm originally from Portland, Oregon, but for three to four months I relocated for work to Phoenix, Arizona. My symptoms have been getting much worse and I wanted to telehealth into my nurse practitioner to see how we can improve my symptoms. All right. So you met Paul originally from Portland, Oregon. And so we'll kind of follow Paul's journey a little bit later on. But as you can see, patients like Paul with psoriasis, you know, especially when their psoriasis progress, can have a really high impact on their quality of life. So what you see here on the left-hand side is the effect on patients' quality of life. And this is a global survey that I had the opportunity to participate in. The lighter color represent lower impact on quality of life and the darker representing higher. And if you're looking at the right-hand side, that's what's interesting. So you look, you see three lines, right? So the first line here is mild psoriasis. What you notice, you would expect for mild psoriasis, it would be all light color, right? Like you would expect patients have you know, pretty much pretty low quality of life uh, being at low quality of most of them having little impact on their quality of life. But you see actually a mix of different colors, which means that for some of our patients with mild psoriasis, if it's in located in the special areas, which we heard some of the talks earlier on today as well, it can have a disproportionately high quality of life. But, you know, here with a severe psoriasis as expected, with a more severe psoriasis, that they would have higher burden in terms of the negative impact on their quality of life. Okay, so here's a pathogenesis of psoriasis and mechanism action. So it, it's, I feel like it's always a little bit overwhelming, right, yeah, yeah. Uh, Tina, yeah. to kind of look at these kind of diagrams. Life continues to evolve, I feel like, every time we Absolutely. Talk about yes, it. yeah. yeah. And yeah. It, because our understanding continues to evolve. Yeah. Yeah. And then so this slide flows from left to the right to kind of talk about the different players that are around. And I just want to point out a few players. You know, our dendritic cells are very important. Those are the cells with the tentacles, always depicted as such. And then they go to the lymph nodes and they tell our naive T cells to 
differentiate into different types. And so the, the key cells that are here is a TH17 cells. And the signal that they give is IL-23. So IL-23 consider a little bit upstream, ask the naive T cells to say, you are going to become a TH17 cell. And so you get this. And then we have the IL-12 tell these cells to become TH1 cell. So when I was in when I was in medical school and residency, most of my books, textbooks actually did not have TH17 cells. This evolution of the, the our understanding of pathogenesis evolved so that your TH17 cells then secrete IL17. And we have the in these red boxes the different biologics that really target that. And so we now have 12 biologics, right? So so it's very exciting. Um, super exciting for that. And, and they target, you know, we have our TNF class here. We have our IL-23 inhibitors. We have our IL-17 inhibitors. And then we have ustekinumab being both an IL-12 as well as IL-23 inhibitor. So now we, we talk about these cytokines and kind of floating in the outside. And, you know, we oftentimes want to think about how these cytokines transmit the signals. So here we have also knowing, for example, IL-23 as a cytokine, its, its action is mediated through the JAK-STAT pathway where you have the cytokine binding to the receptor. And then the receptor have two JAKs associated with it. And then they, I feel like it's like a koi pond, you know, Tina, like... You have the jacks, and then once the jacks are activated, then you have these fish, like stat molecules come up, like you feed a koi pond, koi pond. right? Yeah. And the kois come up I love to that. the surface, <laughs> and then they like interact, and they kind of go, then the stats, kind of like your koi fish, then go into the, into the nucleus, and then they transcribe the cells, uh, transcribe the, the different genes. And so here is a, another overwhelming slide of the different pathways. But in this pathway, I just want to point out a few things, is that our IL-23, which is very important, IL-12, which is also important, but probably relatively less important than IL-23, they all signal through the TIC2 pathway, right? TIC2, JAK2. And that's why we have drug targets uh, against TIC2, such as Ducravacitinib, that's uh, created. Also, we have our interferons, so type 1 interferon, which includes interferon alpha, as well as interferon beta, also signal through this, and then TIC2 being a part of it. And then, Atina, how have you incorporated TIC2 inhibitor in your practice? In our practice? Yeah. yeah, I think, um, you know, we use it a lot for patients who are hesitant to use needles, you know, despite having biologics here for a long time and despite being very comfortable using them, patients, you know, often still would like to avoid it and use an oral therapy. And I think Ducravacitinib has kind of become our, our oral therapy of choice. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Excellent. And okay. now to you. All right, great. So I am going to now talk to you about some of the unmet needs of psoriasis, including the under-treatment of psoriasis, and then also how the disease can progress, especially if we leave it um, untreated for, for too long. Now, as April just talked about, we've come a long way in our understanding of the pathogenesis of psoriasis, and we now have a lot of really wonderful drugs to treat it, but there's still a lot of unmet needs, specifically when it comes to under-treatment of disease. 
So what this slide is showing is it's basically looking at patients who are being treated with topical therapy or actually no prescription therapy at all. And as you can see here, in these patients right here, patients with four to 10 palms or greater than 10 palms, this is what we would call either moderate psoriasis or severe psoriasis. And so what you can see is, is that about 12 to 16% of patients with moderate to severe psoriasis, what we would call a lot of psoriasis on the skin, are getting no prescription treatment at all. So they're going completely untreated which I think is, you know, a little inappropriate in this day and age when we have so many great treatment options. And then 23 to 24% of those patients are getting topical therapy alone. So these are patients with really generalized disease, but they're coming in with, with only topicals. And oftentimes, April, I don't know about in your case, but they're coming in with like little tiny tubes of topicals. Yeah. And they say, I've tried and failed this, but their tube is this big. And so right. we know they can't really apply it to their whole body, right? Absolutely. Now, this next slide is looking at systemic treatments. And so here, you know, the numbers get a little bit higher. As you can see, there's more patients with moderate to severe disease that have, you know, that are using oral or biologic agents, which is great. But if you look at the totals, we're still only at about 50 to 60% of these patients that are using systemic therapy, despite having really severe and extensive disease. So I think, again, this, these two slides really highlight that despite coming a long way, we're really, we're really still under treating this, this disease. Now, for mild patients, you would say, well, you know, that makes sense. Not a lot of mild patients are using systemic treatments, and that might be appropriate if their, their disease is limited. But what I think we need to remember is that many patients with mild disease actually have their disease in affected special areas, we call them. So more sensitive areas or more visible areas, areas that might, you know, make a bigger impact to their lives. So here you can see areas like the scalp, the face, the genitals, nails, palms, and soles. So for example, if I have a patient with palmar psoriasis, you know, technically only 2% body surface area, but if they can't do what they want to do, if they can't do their jobs, if they can't, you know, do all their daily activities, it's really impactful to their, to their quality of life. And again, the studies have proven this, so that the psoriasis in special areas, we know that they do have a greater impact on quality of life. And so because of that, the International Psoriasis Council and now some other groups have, has, as well have really asked us to recategorize what we call severe psoriasis or what we call moderate to severe psoriasis. And so they basically said there's patients with psoriasis. This is our big umbrella. They should be separated into either candidates for topical therapy or candidates for systemic therapy. Just make it really simple. And the patients who are going to be candidates for systemic therapy are obviously the ones who have more generalized disease. So if they have greater than 10% body surface area, we should be considering systemic therapies. But then we also want to think about those patients that might have less body surface area, but then they have disease in those special areas like I just talked about. And then finally, I think the most important one on here is patients who have failed topical therapy. So if they went into originally a candidate for topical therapy, let's say they just had disease on their elbows or just on their knees, but now they're coming to you and they're saying that they're not responding to those topicals, the topicals aren't working, maybe they even hate using those topicals, then we should be considering systemic therapy for these patients. And I think, I don't know about you, April, but, but I think that if we really follow this, we can see those curves in those previous slides really start to increase. I think we would have less under treatment of this disease. Yes, absolutely. I think that, you know, when I look at this categorization, I think it brings some clarity to our clinicians regarding this. And I think, you know, with the topical therapies, you know, we have some newer innovations in the non-steroidal topical therapies, I think, which have 
kind of change the landscape for, for topical therapies, but certainly for patients who fail those or, you know, BSA 10% or greater, like you said, in the, the places within the special areas. The one thing, you know, that I always have pontificated on, which have kept me awake at night, not getting good sleep, is, is, is that oftentimes the payers still require you to have moderate to severe disease. I wish we had classified this a little differently, say patients who have moderate to severe disease fit those criteria, then then that could be more aligned with some of the label language. That is true, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so so maybe in the next version, yes, you and I can work exactly. on that. As we evolve, right? Yes. <laughs> okay, so ta- let's talk a little bit about comorbidity. So we, as April mentioned, you know, psoriasis is associated with many different comorbidities, most commonly psoriatic arthritis, which we mentioned we see in about 30% of patients. And what's really important is that psoriasis in certain sites may actually have an increased risk for progressing to PSA. So when we see patients, for example, with nail dystrophy or with intergluteal or perianal psoriasis, scalp psoriasis, these patients actually are a much higher likelihood of progressing to have psoriatic arthritis, as you can see here with these numbers. Also, obviously, patients with more severe disease or if their disease affects multiple body sites, these patients are also more likely to develop psoriatic arthritis. And interestingly, more than 90% of patients with psoriatic arthritis have a history of known psoriasis prior to developing the psoriatic arthritis. So most of these patients know they have psoriasis. And so it's really in our job to be asking these patients about joint symptoms and kind of trying to predict whether they're going to be progressing to psoriatic arthritis. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the progression of psoriatic disease. So in these patients, 90% of patients where their skin psoriasis comes before their psoriatic arthritis, what we're starting to see is that there's actually preclinical or even very early signs of them developing psoriatic arthritis. And depending on how we intervene on those early signs, it can really make the difference between somebody having a good outcome and their psoriatic arthritis going into remission versus them having a poor outcome or getting long-term damage or destruction of their joints. And I think we've all seen pictures of patients with what we call arthritis mutilans or really deformed joints. And I think what's really important to know is that if we intervene early, we can really prevent those changes from happening. And so we really do play a role in changing these patients' lives. This model of intercepting psoriatic arthritis early is basically based on that concept, saying that, you know, if we were to ask our patients about joint symptoms, even things like fatigue or or joint stiffness, not necessarily joint swelling or joint pain, but if we were to kind of ask about those questions with every visit, and if we were able to intervene as soon as somebody were to present with those symptoms, that we can really make a difference and potentially inhibit the progression of their psoriasis to psoriatic arthritis. I like how you summarize that electric circuit (laughs) diagram. I think the key point, as you said, Tina, is that if they start to have early signs and symptoms of PSA, really thinking about choosing something that could address that. Yeah, yeah, and getting our specialists involved, right, and partnering with our our other specialties like rheumatology. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's continue to hear a little bit more from Paul and where his story goes from here. Hi, Paul. How are you doing today? Not too bad. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. So tell me, why are you calling in today? Yeah, so my psoriasis recently has been getting much worse. Um, I'm going to be honest, it's spread all through my arms. It's all over my legs. It's even spread up on my scalp. Um, my, my hands have been really swollen, my fingers and getting really red and like my joints have been hurting a little bit. I mean, there's been a lot of, a lot of changes, to be honest. Okay. Um, are you still using the tacrolimus ointment twice a day? 
Yeah, I am, but it has been really difficult just because of how much it has spread. Like, I just feel like I have a trouble spreading it all over because, you know, it just used to be small little patches. Um, and also, like, when you know, since it's on my scalp now, it's just, it's hard because, like, it gets my hair really greasy, it's sticky, and it's just, I'm not a huge fan of that. So I've kind of been avoiding that a little bit. Sure. Um, what about your joints? Are you noticing any pain or stiffness in your joints? Yeah, I, so I usually like work out, play basketball once a week, and I've been noticing changes when I've been playing and it's been hurting even like daily tasks. So it's definitely been changing, like I said, you know, soreness and a lot of redness on my fingers. Okay. Um, and what about things like your mood, sleep? Yeah, my sleep. So, I mean, I'm usually really good about getting eight hours of sleep. Um, but recently it's been like six or seven. I just, I've been really struggling. Like I've been itching a lot. Like I feel the need to itch as soon as I'm about to fall asleep. Um, so that's been affected and just my mood. It's just been, I just been a little down to be honest. Um, it's just kind of hard with it spreading all over my legs and arms now on my scalp. Um, I just feel like a lot of people are looking at me, judging me and things of that nature. So um, it's just, yeah, it's been affecting me a little bit, just to be honest. And that's understandable. I mean, psoriasis does, you know, affect your appearance, but you know, you're a young guy. I know you're single and everybody cares what they look like. Um, so I can understand why that would be, you know, frustrating and why you'd feel self-conscious about that. Um, tell me a little bit more though, about your nails and, um, the pitting. Are you noticing that they're lifting away at all, maybe from the nail bed or? Yeah, they've been they've been lifting up away from the skin. You said pitting. There's a lot of dents in them, and that's like something that's never happened before. So <laughs> when I saw that, I was like really concerned. Um, so do, do you think that's because of the psoriasis? Yes, and I think that um, based on everything that you've told me, um, the fact that uh, your skin, uh, the involvement is more widespread than it's been. You're now having joint pain and stiffness and the condition with your nails, the the pitting and the lifting of the nails from the nail bed. Those are all indications that the psoriasis is more severe than it's been. Um, and especially the joint stiffness and the, the pitting and the lifting of the nails. Those are indications that um, you're at risk for psoriatic arthritis. So I think now we've come to the point where we probably need to introduce um, a systemic treatment. Um, what I would start with is something called methotrexate. Um, how do you feel about that? Um, but is there, there's no way we can try a stronger topical? Like, is there any like higher dosage or what do you think? Well, there are ointments that you could use as you've been using um, for the, the skin presentation, but these other um, symptoms that you're having are, are the risk factors for the psoriatic arthritis. And for that, you're going to need something systemic on board. What we would need to do would be to have you screened for TB, hepatitis B and C. Um, we'd also order some blood work just to make sure that your liver and your kidney function are fine. Um, and assuming all of that comes back fine, we could get you started on the prescription. Um, and then what we would do is when you're back, I know you're on temporary duty right now out of town, but then when you come back to Portland, we'd bring you back in for a follow-up, see how the methotrexate is working, and also take a closer look at your joints and just kind of get you know a better idea of what's going on there. Um, if all of that sounds agreeable to you, that would be the course I'd recommend at this point. All right. I'm a little nervous, but I trust you. And I think that's just normal nerves. So I definitely would like to move forward with that because it seems like it's the best option. 
I really think, Paul, at this point, it's where we need to go. Um, so if you're willing to give that a go, I'll have somebody from the office be in touch about calling in the prescription for the blood work that you would need to have done. Um, and then once all that comes back, we'll get you started on the methotrexate and then have somebody call you about scheduling an appointment for when you know you're going to be back in town. Okay. That sounds okay. great. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. You take care. Hang in there. Okay. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Well, I thought that was interesting, yeah, right? Yeah. This patient is very directed, you know, like answer to every question. Very forthcoming. Very forthcoming. Information. What do you think about the choice methotrexate? Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't use a lot of methotrexate anymore, to be honest. I think in this day and age with a lot of our newer biologics, I'm going straight there. But like you mentioned before, there are still, you know, tiny amount of payers where they still want to see patients who have tried and failed methotrexate. So sometimes we're we're forced to use it in that way. And I think in, in rheumatology, our colleagues use a little bit more methotrexate. But honestly, I don't find myself leaning towards methotrexate as much as monotherapy. Sometimes I'll combine it later for biologics. How about yourself? Yeah, I, I, I would have to say, you know, in this particular case, I think, first of all, you know, they, they probably cut out the part where they did the physical exam. Yes. Right. <laughs> to make sure that that the nail findings are, are validated and, and there's a suspicion for potentially PSA. And working with the rheumatology, perhaps methotrexate as a bridging, but but I probably, I very rarely reach for methotrexate, especially in the young person where, you know, when you think about their outlook and how long they need to be on this oral therapy. So I probably would, you know, select one of the, consider one of the biologics, you know, it depends obviously on the body surface area and if I can get active PSA as a diagnosis for, for potential, for a biologic for this yeah. patient. Yeah. So. All right. So let's talk a little bit about how we can change our psoriasis management plans to meet our patients' individual needs, how we can get patients to feel more comfortable, but also being sure that we're providing them with the comprehensive care that we need, that they need. So first, let's talk about patient education and engagement. So the AAD, the American Academy of Dermatology, and the National Psoriasis Foundation have put together these joint treatment guidelines. You may have read them. They're a series of papers, and they talk about psoriasis as a disease, what things that we should be doing for psoriasis patients, and then it goes into more specifics about treatments that are available. I think these guidelines are currently being updated, but one of the things that they talk about a lot is how we can engage our patients and how we can educate them. So some of the things that they mention are, for example, educating about the association of psoriasis with comorbidities. And I'm very surprised at the number of times I bring this up because I think now to us, it's very common knowledge that psoriasis is associated with these comorbidities. But when I talk to patients about it, they actually are completely unaware. They might know about psoriatic arthritis, but they still don't know about things like cardiovascular disease or depression and anxiety. So I think it's still really important that we need to educate our patients about these. We want to routinely screen for the joint symptoms because, like I said, you know, we could be the first people to identify these early signs. And if we could treat them early, then we might inhibit their actual progression to psoriatic arthritis. So that's super important. We want to inform patients about lifestyle factors, things like smoking, consuming alcohol, that might increase the risk of them having more severe psoriasis and potentially could also confound some of the comorbidities that they that they have. And I noticed one thing that they didn't talk about in our in our story was asking him about his alcohol consumption um, and things like that, which I would do if I was, you know, counseling someone on the use of methotrexate. 
We want to regularly initiate sensitive discussions. We want to ask patients, you know, how are they doing? How is their quality of life? I've been very surprised that when I dig a little deeper and I ask patients a little bit more about their disease, how quickly they're able to open up and tell me that, you know, they're not doing well, that their disease is really having a large impact on their quality of life. But if I hadn't have asked that question, not everybody is like Paul and is so forthcoming with that information. You just really have to ask. But as soon as I ask, I find patients are very willing to talk about it. And then finally, we want to engage patients in our shared decision making. So when I'm having the, the conversation with patients about systemic agents, I'm actually going through all of the options. I talk to them about optimizing topical therapy. I'm talking to them about phototherapy, which we have at our center. It's not available everywhere. But then I'm also talking to them about oral therapies and biologic therapies. So I'm kind of laying it all out on the table. And oftentimes I'll have them ask me, you know, they ask me, what, what would I do if I was in this situation or what would I prefer? And then I might, you know, kind of try to, try to guide them in one direction or another. But most of the time I, I, I have the discussion with them and I have an open conversation. What's your approach? Yes. So I pick up therapy in my head based on their comorbidities, you know, other factors. And then I tell them about it and I gauge their reaction. And I can tell if they're doubtful or they're like hesitant, then I ask them, you know, do you have any concerns about that? Importantly, I say I picked this because I picked this especially for you. And I think it's very important, you know, I say well, there are a lot of treatments, but based on my assessment of your symptoms and your other medical conditions, I think this one is best for you, you know, and, and I go over some of the MOA efficacy and I, and I, you know, I ask them what they think. And patients are different. Some patients are not ready at all for systemic therapy, which case, you know, so, so I, I really individualize it and I really watch their nonverbals. And you can tell, you know, if they're not like, oh, you know, you know, some patients, you know, I, I think every patient has a different readiness level when they come to us. Some of them are not ready at all. And then, you know, this is the right therapy for them, but they're not ready. And I think, I think as it, it's okay if you're not ready. Why don't I see you in another month or so? Here's something to think about, you know. And then so, so I believe in like priming them, yeah. sowing the seed. And then when they come back, oftentimes, you know, and also tell them the, the, the uh, harmful effects of not treating, right, their psoriasis. So I, I don't believe in offering people a menu of options because they don't know. Yeah. That's why they yeah. came to, to us. And so it's, it, I, and I think we play a huge part in terms of, and even if they come to us and say, oh, I saw this commercial, you know, the couple went off to the sunset holding hands, seemed to have a fabulous life, or my cousin's is on this, what do you think? I say, well, it's an option, but, you know, looking at you, I think it's this, this might be, and, and oftentimes they're not, you know, oftentimes they trust you, and so, but getting their buying is very important. But the timing of when they're ready to make that decision is also different. Yeah. So, yeah, I agree. I like to see them multiple times because it also helps to build that therapeutic relationship, right, with the patient. Absolutely. And that build that trust, right? And yes. so that they'll, they'll trust in what you say. Yes. Yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about things that we can do to help patients not only take the treatment that, that we think is appropriate for them, but also to adhere to the treatments. Because we all know that if somebody is not 
following the directions or taking the treatments as prescribed, they're obviously probably not going to work. So first, we want to set clear expectations about the treatment and when to notify us if the treatment's not working or if they're experiencing side effects. I think this is super important, especially for some of the drugs which might not work, you know, overnight. They might take a few weeks to start seeing results. I think it's really important to specify to the patient that don't be alarmed. You know, it might take a few shots. It might take a few, you know, weeks of the pills to see the, see the results. Because if not, they're going to really be upset. You know, a week later, they're going to be calling your office. They're going to be saying, you know, you said that this was going to be the, the cured my psoriasis right. and here I am and it's not working. Um, so it's really important to set those clear expectations. And sometimes I'll actually kind of under promise in the hopes that if they see results sooner, they actually will get excited. And so I'll say, you know, we don't see, you know, maximal results until three or four months. And so when they start seeing results in a month or two, they're super ecstatic. They're really excited to see it. I also do sometimes for the patients that are more hesitant, I'll do something called like a cheerleading visit. And so I actually bring them in at that month point after starting and you know, tell them that, wow, this is, it's doing great. This is exactly what it's supposed to be doing, even though it might not be doing, you know, exactly what it's supposed to be doing just yet. But I think, again, that that gives them the security that nothing is wrong, that this is exactly what's supposed to be happening. And it really gets them to adhere and continue with their, with their treatments. That's great. And is that when the medical students bring out the pump? Yes, exactly. Okay. The <laughs> For the patient. Yeah. <laughs> the balloons shooting That's up. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Secondly, we want to advise patients to let us know if they're having side effects, if they're feeling ill, if they have any changes in their medical status, because there are times where we might have to pause their treatments, we might have to change certain things around. So again, you know, having a clear portal of communication for the patients to get in touch with us should we need to make any changes. We want to advise patients that if their treatment results in clear skin, that they need to continue to take the medication, that there's no cure for psoriasis. Here, I find there's two camps. There are the patients that are just waiting for their skin to get clear just so that they can stop the medication. They're just like waiting to stop the medication. And then there's the other side where once their skin gets clear, they ask if they're like, please never take me off of this medication. I never want to stop, right? So I feel like I have like two different conversations depending on the on the patients that I'm seeing. But But again, you know, telling them this is not a cure, even though your skin is clear, if you were to stop this medication, your psoriasis will slowly creep back or sometimes quickly creep back. And so they need to continue this. This is a long-term medication. Telling them from the start is really important. And then finally, we want to provide reliable patient resources, such as the National Psoriasis Foundation that April mentioned, where patients can get clear, accurate information, because we know there's a lot of fake news, there's a lot of fake information out there. So we want to make sure that patients are getting reliable resources if they have questions and they can't get a hold of us. And then finally, when it comes to things like psoriatic arthritis, when it comes to other comorbidities, you know, depression, anxiety, all of the things that we talked about earlier, we want to make sure that we have some type of a system in place where we can provide coordinated care for our patients. So making sure that our staff are aware of these comorbidities, making sure that we have systems in place for referrals to other specialties should we need them, kind of just streamlining this for our patients makes it really hard. Because as we all know, sometimes navigating the medical system in this country is really, really difficult. Difficult. So just having clear systems in place can be very helpful. And so what is your role in all of this? So obviously, all of us are working together to make this all happen. So we're relationship building, as, as Bill said, making patients feel comfortable with going on these treatments. We're setting reasonable expectations. And then we're continually assessing these treatment options and making sure that this is the right treatment for the patient. And if it's not the right patient, right treatment, making sure that we're proactive in making changes so that, again, we're not only treating their skin but preventing comorbidities.
Okay, so we're going to meet our second patient. This is Trisha, and we're going to hear her story. Hi, my name is Trisha Bowman. I'm 43 years old, and I have had psoriasis since I was 19. I've tried every kind of medication, pills, topical, ointments. It's just been a really long haul. Most recently, I was uh, prescribed cyclosporin and that doesn't seem to be cutting it anymore. So I'm here today to talk about other possibilities. All right. So let's take a look at some of the evidence supporting the use of biologics in psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis and also the special areas. Okay, so I think we review some of the candidates who are appropriate for systemic therapy. Let's talk about goals. What goals should we reach out for? So this is a National Psoriasis Foundation Treat to Target, which says that, you know, we may want to evaluate patients three months after initiating a systemic therapy. And the acceptable goal is getting them to 3% or less of body surface area and hopefully at least 75% better improvement after three months, which is an aggressive acceptable response. But overall, long-term, the key thing to remember is the last line here, which is to try to get patients in 1% or less of body surface area. So that's a goal that we, you know, I typically, I do discuss with my patients, but if that 1% is on the face, you know, then we want to really get that down. Absolutely. So we talked about the different things that we want to consider when selecting a specific therapy. Importantly, their comorbidities, and then we'll talk a little bit about that. So here are our biologics that are approved for psoriasis. So as you can see, nearly all of them are approved for psoriatic arthritis as well. Bimikizumab being the newest one that's recently approved. And I think that having this armamentarium of therapies is very helpful for our patients. Here is a, a network meta-analysis that was done looking at different responses. So I'll walk you through this a little bit. So this is weeks 10 through 16. So this is our primary endpoint. And this is a forest plot. So what we're looking at is here, the green ones, these parts, the square green ones, are the percentage of patients achieving POSI 100. And the more to the right, the higher the response is. And then this is POSI 90% of the patients achieving POSI 90 at really short term, right? And then proportion of patients achieving POSI 75. So first thing you'll notice is that POSI 75 actually cl cluster closer together because we're using a lower bar. So when we use a lower bar, highly performing medications oftentimes cluster very close together. And then if we're using like a higher bar, you see start to see a bit separation. And then here you see a lot of separation here. I think the key thing to notice also, a lot of these bars overlap, so we can't, you know, make a definitive statement. So sometimes when patients ask me, gosh, you know, is, is ixacizumab, I mean, they don't use the word ixacizumab, but if they're like, oh, is ixacizumab or, you know, or rizinkizumab, you know, you know, which one's better? And I say, yes, because all these, especially the ones on the top, are typically jostling for top position here, but they oftentimes have overlapping uh, confidence intervals here. And the long-term data here, when we were looking at POSI 90 and POSI 100 later analysis have shown, you know, your IL 23s and then IL 17s, including, you know, brodalumab are really highly performing in, in the longer term as well. 
All right, some of the head-to-head trials, always my favorite type of study. So this one, we're looking at secukinumab versus gaselkumab on the left and secukinumab versus rizinkizumab. So essentially looking at one IL-17 versus two different IL-23s. And what you'll notice is that here, the primary endpoint is at week 48. So gaselkumab beat out right, secukinumab at the primary endpoint. When you look at the initial phases, it's actually very similar, right? And then here we're looking at secukinumab versus rizinkizumab. Poor secukinumab here was shown to be inferior to compared to rizinkizumab. But, you know, just showing the innovation in our biologic therapies over time. Here is ixikizumab versus gaselkumab. So the top line here is ixi. The bottom line here is gaselkumab. Overall, so as you can see, ixikizumab in this head-to-head study had a faster onset of action right here, no doubt. And then by week 24, though, they are pretty much the same. And then here's ixikizumab versus eustekinumab, right? So this one convincingly beating out eustekinumab in terms of efficacy. And then here are some of the special sites. You know, I know you heard today earlier about special sites as well. But, you know, scalp is one area that really, you know, really bothers our patients in addition to other ones that we're going to talk about. So this is a prospective non-interventional observational study that was done. So there's some selection bias, I should say, in, in the therapy. But what they looked at is comparing ixikizumab versus these other biologics. And then if you get the line over to the right of the dash line, that would favor ixikizumab having greater efficacy. If, it's, if this is to the left, that means ixikizumab is inferior to whatever drug that's listed here. So in this study, what they showed is that ICSI performed very well in terms of scalp compared to the, the biologics that are listed here. In genital psoriasis here, overall, you can see RZA also did very well. Adalimumab in this did well as well. And then for nail disease, what we see is the IL-17 inhibitors all do very well. And then as you can see on here, these are all comparisons that will favor ixikizumab, so through the right of the dash line. And then facial, right, face and neck, something that we care a lot about as well. As you can see, all the medications are pretty much comparable to that. And then Palmer plantar, this looks at some of the therapies. So as you can see, a lot of them actually do work pretty comparably based on this particular analysis. And here is a summary of IL-17A cohort versus other biologics. So anything that's to the right of this favor the IL-17A category. And then in the middle means if your line straddles middle, no difference if to the left favors other biologics. So I think for the special areas, it looks like IL-17 inhibitors do work quite well for those. And then very importantly, so why will we, you know, consider biologic in our patients who may have signs and symptoms of PSA? This data actually shows what happens if you treat them with topicals versus conventional DMARDs, like the methotrexate that was mentioned in the earlier video, versus biologics. And then look at the incidence rate over time. The biologics had the lowest incidence rate when the patients are treated with biologics. So I think, you know, there are controversies out there. Do biologics really retard the progression of psoriatic arthritis? In my personal opinion, I think they do. It makes good mechanistic sense. And also most the preponderance of the epidemiologic data in this favor that observation. All right. So here we're looking at IL-17 inhibitors and the treatment against the multiple domains, right? Your skin, quality of life, 
pain and joint impact on the joint. So what you see is that overall improvement in all of those different joints. This is interesting. This is, a, I think, is a great table here, which looks at the different PSA domains, right? When we think about psoriatic arthritis, we think principally of the peripheral do the joints in your hands, are they stiff? And then that's the most common manifestation. So what you will see in this table is that the pluses meaning having a lot of positive effects, right? And, and then the other, other domains like enthesitis or inflammation in the tendon, and then also dactylitis, how thick your finger or swollen your finger becomes due to joint disease, spine, axial, psoriatic arthritis, uveitis, and IBD x-ray progression. So as you can see, kind of informative in terms of, you know, when, when they go to the rheumatologist, how they evaluate these various domains and try to think about therapies that may be most appropriate for this. In terms of safety and risk management, I think overall IL-17 and IL-23, overall they're very safe, both very safe. Overall, generally no increased rates of malignancy, no increased rates of serious infections. For TB, we want to you know, avoid that in patients with, with TNF inhibitors. For fungal infections, some of our IL-17 inhibitors may be associated with oral candidiasis, but mostly treatable and did not necessitate discontinuation of the medications. MACE events, no MACE signals with our IL-17 or IL-23 class. If you have a patient who was pregnant or breastfeeding, I would say consider sertilizumab because it lacks the FC region, so therefore it cannot cross the placenta, and it's not found in breast milk as well. So, so that's, you know, that's two, essentially almost three years, right? Because you're pregnant for nine months, and then now the recommendation is to breastfeed for two years. So, you know, that's pretty much three years if you have a severe psoriasis to be on the biologic. IBD, so we want to avoid the use of IL-17 medications in patients with inflammatory bowel disease because in the select number of patients, they may worsen their IBD. And here are the guidelines for laboratory monitoring. I was happy to be a part of the guidelines committee, and, and we've really simplified the guidelines that was, gosh, 2019 seems like a long time ago, but we really actually worked hard on this and really simplified in terms of the laboratory monitoring. So at baseline, we recommend TB, CBC, CMP, hepatitis B, and C in everyone. I think if we rewrite the guidelines now, it may even be simpler. Yeah. And but TB definitely TB in everyone, and then even back then, you know, we said TB yearly in high risk groups, right? Only in the high risk groups. So, who are they? Patients on TNF inhibitors and patients who either live in endemic areas of TB or are in close contact with the people who travel to those endemic areas for TB. All right, so let's take a look at this story of how Tisha Bowman's visit went. Hi, Tricia. How are you? Okay. I gather you're calling because the cyclosporin isn't doing the job for you. No, I mean, it worked for a couple months. It seemed to clear things up and now it's not working at all. And the stiffness that I had the last time I was here, I think it's getting worse. Mm-hmm. I noticed from your chart, um, Dr. Chen noted that the last at your last visit, um, you were experiencing swelling in many of your fingers and toes. Uh, she noted inflammation of your right Achilles tendon. Um, and as a result, you were having pain from that. Um, in addition to pain and stiffness in your wrists and your heels, 
Have you noticed any improvement in those symptoms at all? Not at all. And in fact, I would say they're worse. Worse. Okay. Especially my heel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that you and Dr. Chen discussed uh, the benefits of some approved targeted biologics and small molecule treatments. Have you given any additional thought to those? Yeah. I mean, I have to go. Uh, I was reluctant to at first, and now I think I really have to consider it. Um, I did want to let you guys know, though, that I um, had my annual visit with my primary care, and she diagnosed me with high blood pressure and put me on an ACE inhibitor. And uh, I'm also pre-diabetic, and she wants me to lose about 20 pounds at least. Um, well, first of all, thank you for telling me because it's important that we we get all of that noted. Um, I agree with you. Um, things are progressing and it's important and I'm, I'm glad you agree that it's it's time and that you're willing to, to move to something stronger. Um, there are some of the options uh, that we would consider would include TNF inhibitors, IL-17 inhibitors and IL-23 inhibitors. And those are injectable biologics. Then there um, are TIC2 and PDE4 inhibitors, which are oral options. Um, do you have a strong preference or no preference, one versus the other, injectable versus oral? I think, my, I mean, my first choice would totally be pills, right? Um, I mean, I'm open to learning how to um, inject myself at home, but, uh, my preference would be the, the pills. Okay. And the thing I will tell you, the thing with the TNF, um, that has been associated with weight gain. So if your primary is wanting you to lose weight and, um, you know, that, that would be a consideration. Um, so that might rule that one out. Um, the good news is that an ACE inhibitor would not, or should not be a contraindication to any of these agents that we're talking about. So you still would have plenty of options. It would really just come down to, you know, preference and what Dr. Chen would think would be the best given where you are now um, and the other things you have going on. Um, and with that specifically in mind, I think um, what I need to do is talk to Dr. Chen. And I think I'm pretty sure she's going to want to refer you to a rheumatologist to get a really good assessment of um, your joints and kind of where that all is, align that treatment with um, your skin conditions, with your psoriasis, and for sure loop in your PCP so that everything can be, all of your different treatment plans can be aligned and get a really good idea so that everything is working in concert and nothing's in conflict and that everybody, the physicians all know what's going on with your different um, symptoms and treatment plans. Um, I want to assure you though, that there are plenty of options for this. And I, I know you've been dealing with this since you were 19 years old and it can be discouraging and frustrating. And just because you are used to dealing with this and familiar with dealing with this doesn't mean you should have to suffer unnecessarily. Um, so what I recommend is um, either I or Dr. Chen will be in touch with you in the next couple of days. Um, we'll kind of get everything together, go through it all, um, and then figure out what the next plan will be, loop in the other doctors and um, determine where we go from here. Does that sound agreeable to you? That sounds great. Thank okay. you so much, Laura. Oh, 
Oh, you're you're so welcome. Um, hang in there. I know I know it's been terrible, but if you can just hang in there a little bit longer, we'll we'll get things started um and hopefully get you on a path to feeling better very soon. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. You're so welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow, that's interesting again. Um, Very different style. Yes, yeah. So, I I mean, she she takes the opposite approach from my approach of deciding when and go for it, you know, um, which is one way. And actually, you know, for patients who never tried pills or injectables, that is what they say. But I feel like when you offer people options, you want to tell them also about how well something works. exactly. Right? Well... I want to thank everyone for your attention, and I think few conclusions. Treat early if you can, and because you know early treatment can lead to a prevention, possibly in some of the comorbidities that we talked about. We looked at some of the data with regards to the different biologics, and let's go to the questions because we have a lot of them, <laughs> and we'll do like lightning round style. Yeah. All right. So maybe we'll each take one. How does that sound? Sure, yeah. Okay. How do you treat patients with a history of IBD who have failed TNF and IL-23 agents? So I think this question goes around how we try to avoid using IL-17 agents in patients with a history of inflammatory bowel disease. So, you know, honestly, I, I haven't had too many trouble getting patients. Once I find the right TNF or the right IL-23, I've usually been able to get patients control of both their diseases. You know, oftentimes we might have to use something like infliximab or, you know, a more intensive anti-TNF inhibitor. But I actually do have one patient where in conjunction with GI, we actually do have them on an IL-17 inhibitor and they have just done fine. And so I think it's important to remember that even though there was some exacerbation, those case numbers are small. And I think it just requires working together with other special as we talked about in this in this case. Yeah, and for that question of, you know, patient with IBD, failed TNF, failed IL-23, I love this question. It's like, let me X out all of the categories, <laughs> yeah. right? I think you may want to consider decravacitinib, yes, right? That's Who, a good point, Which yeah. is approved yeah. for psoriasis. It's being studied, shown to have some efficacy in IBD. So that that might be good. And combination therapy, I guess we should Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Best treatment algorithm for palmar plantar psoriasis, very difficult to treat. Also, payers don't like to pay for biologics because of the small body surface area. So usually topical therapies don't get enough penetration to those areas, but you can certainly try, try for that. But, you know, this is what I consider special areas. This is where you want to convince the payers that this is a special area and the patient would be important for them to get systemic therapy. So I usually then sending the IPC guidelines and try to get them on the biologic. Yeah, it takes a little more effort, but it can be done. Yes, Yes, yeah. yeah. And I think either IL-17 or IL-23 are very good. Some of my colleagues like the oral molecules, thinking that they may have a little bit better penetration into the palmar plantar areas. I think, you know, we don't have head-to-head for that particular phenotype, but something to think about just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. Brian asks, concomitant biologics for psoriasis treatment in the cancer patient, what do you look for in terms of side effects? First of all, if the patient has active cancer, you definitely want to get the blessing from the oncologist. Typically for those patients, probably IL-17 or IL-23 inhibitors have very good safety data in those patients. And side effects, I really want to look out for infection because those patients may be immunosuppressed from their either from their concomitant cancer therapy or from the cancer themselves. So definitely look for some of the infectious side effects. 
All right. Which systemic therapies for psoriasis are best for patients who have hepatitis B? And I think, again, kind of a similar answer. I usually will lean towards the IL-23 inhibitors, IL-17 inhibitors in these cases. I think the evidence um, shows that those are probably the safest. Again, there's different types of, you know, chronic hep B versus, you know, hep B carrier status and things of that sort. So there might be some monitoring involved, but those are the agents that I, that I lean for. Excellent. Are there biomarkers available to help determine the best agent, target agent IL-17 versus IL-23 versus other? There is a commercially available, I think, a MindQ test, yeah, that you can do a, apply a patch to a patient and then send off to a lab, and then they can, they won't tell you which drug within the class, but it can give you which some class? hints on which class. So one might consider that perhaps for the treatment-resistant patients. Yeah. So Although sometimes they're not aligned with insurances just yet. So yes. Even if you have that report for MindQ, the insurance company might still say that you have to cycle through something else. We've had that come up once, but, but it can be helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We got a lot more questions, but unfortunately, I think I'm getting the cue that we need to <laughs> end this. Uh, unfortunately, well, you're having a good time, time flies by. And thank you so much for being here and staying so engaged. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash DJC 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Lilly.